So longtime listeners of the show will probably remember Jay Davis, who's been on a number of times. Well, in addition to being a friend and a consulting client, I'm excited to say now that he's also a sponsor of this show. Last year, when I was spending a lot of time at his company's office, he started a new company called Pillow Cube, which is this awesome memory foam rectangle pillow that's tall enough for me to be a side sleeper, but not have to have my head sag down like when I try to fold over my regular pillows. It's really pretty amazing, and for any side sleepers like me, it's great so we don't have to wake up with shoulder pain. On top of that, it's been really fun for me to see him have so much success because it's been selling like crazy. Anyways, if you're a side sleeper, I highly recommend going to pillowcube.com and getting one for yourself. There. One of the things that, that I think that if a person is stimulated by new ideas, then they'll come to this naturally. But if a person is less that way, they might not come to this point naturally. And that is to be a successful manager of any organization, any enterprise, you don't have to come up with all the ideas yourself. And the last thing you want to do is put yourself in the position where you must come up with all the ideas because you're going to put unnecessary pressure on yourself, you know, even anxiety producing for yourself. The fact is op- options and opportunities arise arise in all kinds of places, including places. Welcome to Innovation and Leadership, where I interview uncommonly high achievers like top investment fund managers, elite special operations soldiers, startup CEOs who sold their companies for billions of dollars, pro athletes, Hollywood filmmakers, really as many different kinds of experts as I can. The whole idea is to hear how they did it and then what advice they have for the rest of us that can be applied to the organizations we're trying to grow and innovate. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed today's show. Today on the show, we've got Cliff Hudson. Cliff, thanks for making time. Happy to be with you, Jess. Thanks for the opportunity. So I'm really loving your book. We're definitely going to be spending time talking about it. But why don't we start off with a little bit of some of the stats of Sonic and and kind of the progress that, that they made over your, your tenure at that uh, fine dining establishment. <laughs> well, I'm always happy to talk about that. That's, that's good stuff. Well, so Sonic, uh, as an employee of the company, was long. It was 35 years, almost to the day. Uh, my time as CEO was uh, 20, 23 years. So uh, some, I was always an officer of the company, but a transition over that time. But, you know, when in, I joined the company in 84. I left in 2018. I Technically, my employment ended in 2019, so uh, that's the 35 years. But when I joined the company, you know, let's say there are 300 million in system-wide sales. When I left, there was 4.5 billion, you know. When I took over as CEO, there was between eight and 900 million in sales. So we it did we did increase in my time as CEO, we increased the system sales by five times. There are other numbers too, the store count. When I joined the company, let's say 980. When I left, there were about four times that number of stores in the system. When I when we bought the company in 86, we paid just just shy of 10 million bucks. I think it was 9.8 million dollars for the company in 1986. And when I left the company, we sold it for 2.3 billion dollars. So all, all of those, I like to see a smile. I like to see a smile and laugh when you know when I say that. But at any rate, so I mean in, in all in all measurements always, those are the those are the outward numbers that everyone understands. Here here are the numbers I like. Our average franchisee, when I started there, probably had, you know, let's say six or eight stores. When I left, it was a number two or three times that. The average store, when I arrived, had about mm, 300,000 in sales. When I left, it was about 1.3 million average store sales. The the average operator, when we bought the company, was living an okay life. You know, when I, just before I retired, before the company was bought, 
the two fellows who had been chairman of our Franchise Advisory Council, neither of them with college education. One of them had come into the business being a bread delivery, bread truck delivery driver. You know, you learn the business on the side. When when I left Sonic, he had 350 stores. He had between four and 500 million in revenues. I have no idea how much real estate he owned. He owned an extraordinary amount of real estate. So the revenues I just gave you doesn't include rent. And his, 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 uh, he, he was a millionaire many, many, many times over. There were others that repeated that story. The fellow that came in behind him uh, as chair of the Franchise Advisory Council was my age. When I joined the company, he probably had 12 to 14 stores. When I left, he had 102 stores. He probably had 125, 130 million in revenues quite easily. He moved amongst four states to visit his various stores on his own private airplane. His kids had come into the business. I mean, on and on and on. You find you find second, even third generations going to business. Jess, the thing I thought was one of the most qualitative uh, indicators of success was it wasn't just that kids were in the business. It was that in-laws wanted in the business, you know? <laughs> <laughs> what, how fun so, to be able to celebrate all sorts of people's wins, you know? Oh, man. That's, that's one of the great things about the franchising business is celebrating other people's wins. It's just so great because these independent operators get to help you build it. And if you approach it well from a partnership, it is win, 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 win. It's just a, it's a great American story. Yeah. You know, we have to start off with like how I fell in love with your book in like the first minutes because <laughs> well, it's we can start off with the title Master of None, How a Jack of All Trades Can Still Reach the Top. And I I totally own my ADHD. You know, like okay. I was I was in investment banking, I was in mergers and acquisitions and investment banking team at Citigroup. You know, I used to run a private equity fund and now we've got a real estate investment fund and and I own this media company and a consulting firm. 10 years ago, I started a charity that combats child trafficking. I, I've, you know, I'm an art school dropout. I've got all these different hobbies. And yeah. there's a lot of shame in the world about not focusing and not being able to yeah. stick to something. And Isn't right. That funny? So that what funny? I want, if you would, will you talk about where this saying that is typically used in a derogatory way, this jack of all trades, master of none. Can you talk about uh, who actually said that and who they were saying it about? Yeah, well, that is a funny story, isn't it? So the, the source of that, and, and the good thing is this will mean nothing to virtually any listener. The source of that is a fellow named Robert Green. And so people can say, well, what does that mean to me? Well, that's the point. I mean, his his view was that a jack of all trades was, was a derogatory term. And he used it regarding one of his peers at the time in England, who he viewed as someone who was so splintered they'd never get anywhere. Anyway, so the point of it, Robert Greene's comment was he was making the comment about William Shakespeare and saying that William Shakespeare couldn't focus and would never get anywhere. So it's just a wonderful little tidbit about uh, life is full of variety and, and life is richer when you take advantage of that variety. And this is how, frankly, how I've tried to lead my life, I think, and it has made it richer and more enjoyable. And this is why the, the title of the book, the subtitle is really uh, as important, if not more so than the title. They just happen to flow that way. Master of none, how a jack of all trades can still reach the top. So that that is the origin. I I love it because, I don't know, I think that from the outside, it would be very easy for you to not bring that up about yourself. You know, like you're a lawyer, people assume that you guys know what you're doing. 
you're, you know, you, <laughs> you, you, at the same organization for three plus decades, hardly anybody else has done that, you know, these days and CEO for 23 years, you know, you, in many ways, if you wanted to, you know, fit in with the crowd of this, like, I'm good at focus, I, I'm good at mastery. And listen, I think mastery is great. But how about mastery at a few different things or levels of mastery, right? But right. for you to kind of out yourself and say, hey, listen, <laughs> part of the reason I've been able to do so well is, is my hobbies and all my interests and, and my doing 25 things at once. It's, yeah. it's fascinating. And it's, it gives permission to the people who are more like you. Yeah. Well, that's a, that's a fascinating feedback. So a couple of points about the longevity of the company. There were times, in no small part because of my uh, diverse interests and, and uh, need for stimulation, where I would say to my wife, you know, it's amazing to me. I mean, I'd say this at, at 10 years, at 20 years, you know, with Sonic, I would say to my wife, I'm amazed I'm still employed by the same company. And my wife would say, you're not employed by the same company. It's, it is a radically different company. Or if I said, isn't it amazing how long I've had this job? She would say, your job has changed so many times in so many ways. You may get a paycheck from the same place, but your job has changed so radically. And she was she was correct. But I also did things along the way to help me. And so given the fact that you say I kind of added myself and you, you talk about your own orientation since in terms of the variety of interests and the need for simulation. One of the things I did in 90. Five, I moved into, quote, the CEO's office, and it took me a while to realize why it was so frustrating for me. But it was the pinnacle of success. It was downtown, high-rise building, top floor, corner office, marble floors, private bathroom. You had to go through my secretary's office to get to my I mean, it was everything a scared CEO, you know, would want to have. And and yet, I, I the longer I was in the office, the more I resented it. And so we designed new office space and moved to a new building. And I'd seen this elsewhere. And and my reaction was, this is I, I got to do this differently when I can design it bottom up. So what I did when we moved to this new space, instead of a high rise building, the building was laid down. So instead of ten thousand square foot place, we had twenty five thousand. But I, and, and one of the things I did was no corner offices anywhere in the building. Nobody got a corner office and nobody thought about furniture. And where was my office? Middle floor, middle of the building. And my quote, private office was surrounded in clear glass. And I, I had a desk where I could sit out on open floor. And if I needed privacy, I went in behind the clear glass. I'd meet with people, et cetera. But there was no no break from employees. And this did wonders for my productivity. There are some people who would say, how could you get any work done? Oh, no, it did wonders for my productivity and, you know, for my mental stimulation, you know. So sorry for the long story, but that was in a small way was one of the stories about how I really elongated my time with the company because that setup of seeing employees all day, et cetera, really elongated my time in position in a big way. You know, you talk about this idea of having kind of a low hum in the background helps with focus. And yes. uh, I, I wanted to recommend a book to you. It's by a guy named Andrew Smart. It's called Autopilot. Okay. And okay. It's, it's about the researchers who, who were putting these people in the machines to say what part of the brain does that lights up when they think about this, what part of the brain lights up when they think about that. And they thought their machines were broken because when the people weren't supposed to be thinking about anything, this part of their brain kept lighting up. And these researchers accidentally mm. discovered something called the default mode network. And it's basically mm. the part of your brain that like ties together all these disparate things that you see throughout the day and it activates while you sleep and, 
And he, he goes on to talk about like how we can be too busy to become as smart as possible because you actually need to leave some room for your brain to tie all these things uh, together. But, uh, fascinating. but it also goes on to, you know, how folks, you know, like, I'm not saying you have ADD, but I have ADD. My kids all have <laughs> ADD. And like, you know, people who like, they listen to rock music while they're doing math or while oh, they're yeah, writing sure. or something like yeah. that. And yeah, it's, right. it's, it helps from the like, the over, the over focus on any one thing that's in front of them because they've right. got that going in the background they can stay on task. And uh, yes. you, you talked about these concepts and I thought, oh, you might be interested in someone like the science that proves you're right. So, yeah, no, that's quite fascinating. So Smart's first name is what? What is his first name? Andrew Smart, I believe. Andrew, called, Andrew Smart. Andrew Smart. Yeah. Okay, but good. It's called good. Autopilot. But yeah, uh, well, for, for years from my standpoint, I mean, if it, working in the evening, reviewing board documents, reviewing reports from subordinates, et cetera. I mean, what's the best thing for me to do? Have a baseball game on in the background, you know? It, it allows me to focus. My my wife was always her she her head works differently. She was always trying to figure that out. How could I have the TV on and work? You know. So, but at any rate, this was I, I share the characteristic with you. Yeah. So when you think about you know again you guys when you guys got into the business buying the business at ten million selling at two point three billion I think that's a pretty pretty uh, significant compound annual growth rate there, my yeah. friend. So when you think about principles that startups today or or you know smaller growing businesses today could learn from that you know impressive success story there, what are some of the takeaways you tell folks like me or other listeners here? There there are probably several, but one one in particular for the person that is working hard in an entrepreneurial setting. And particularly if they take the approach that you hear from so so many people, keep your head down, keep your nose, nose to the grindstone, you know, et cetera. And yet the 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 fact is there are many things that are gonna be happening, even only if you have your head up, you know, and uh, that's literal and 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 not literal, figurative. So what am I referring to there? One of the things that that I think if a person is stimulated by new ideas, then they'll come to this naturally. But if a person is less that way, they might not come to this point naturally. And that is to be a successful manager of any organization, any enterprise, you don't have to come up with all the ideas yourself. And the last thing you want to do is put yourself in the position where you must come up with all the ideas because you're going to put unnecessary pressure on yourself, you know, even anxiety uh, producing for yourself. The fact is options and opportunities arise in all kinds of places, including places very unrelated to your immediate activities. But you got to keep your head up and keep your eyes open. And when you see them, it's not you. They don't have to be your ideas to utilize them. You may have to modify them slightly in order to make them work. But that's you know that's what you do in life anyway. So this is probably one of the number one things is there are all kinds of ways to think about growth and all kinds of ways to think about expansion of an enterprise. But if you limit yourself to internally generated organic ideas for growth only, you're going to miss all kinds of stuff. And I do write about that in the book because I do make the point that that ideas coming to you from outside your organization are essential uh, to the health and growth of your organization. So for a small operator, I think that's particularly true because you can't generate it all yourself. Another might be with someone early on in growing a company, make sure that uh, your uh, folks around you are empowered to, to innovate as well. It, it's possible, not far-fetched at all, for a small business owner operator to uh, orient themselves toward micromanagement, but that's not going to encourage, encourage innovation among others. So you do have to entrust that to them. And perhaps one of the one of the key things is to, uh, I'm going to use a term here that I think you'll know exactly what I mean, but you got to permit them to, if, to fail in good faith. 
In other words, if 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 someone makes the same mistake over and over again, you got to that someone has a problem. If someone makes a uh, mistake in you know in, in in withholding information or something that's in a bad faith sort of way, that's problematic. But a person who is aligned with you, working hard, full of good intention, and in good faith screws up. You you've got to say, okay, what did we learn from that? Now let's let's you know, let's keep going and let's see if we can improve our results by what we learn from this screw up. If you don't permit people to screw up, you're not going to get people to innovate because they're not going to take risks uh, with your organization. You know, they're not going to take risks on innovation if you're going to punish them, punish them when they screw up. And if you are going to punish them, everybody's going to know it. That's going to become part of the culture. And so you'll end up with no risk takers and instead end up with people just wanting to carry out, you know, orders, so to speak. So those are a couple of thoughts I would give somebody growing an organization, a newer, younger organization. Yeah. Hope you that know, makes sense. Yeah, it does. You know, this idea about having your head up, right? Like for me, this this podcast is a little bit of that. I Our listeners know I'm a real audiobook nerd. I just typically listen to three or four audiobooks a week. And then and and then these episodes, you know, I, I think we've recorded over 500 of these episodes now. And wow. it's just an opportunity for me to meet all these people I wish I knew, like you, right? Yeah. And, <laughs> and uh and yet you just saying that makes me think, am I, am I being as active about it as I could? Am I, you know, because sometimes this can be a routine because people are expecting another show. So you, you hop on and do another one. Right. And right. the show has become popular enough that we have like really quite great folks asking to be on the show. You know what I mean? So I can mm -hmm. kind of just sit there yeah. and see who comes, but, right. but it does make me think like, yeah, but am I putting in the extra effort to go pursue some of the other folks that I think can expand my thinking and help me have something to bring back to the team, right? And, you know, being more intentional about it. And, and I think I probably could be more intentional about it. Yeah, well, it's probably true with all of us on all of our endeavors in terms of how much we reach out and how much we push, you know, versus yeah. kind of settle, settle for another place. So I, I think that's, you know, what the right level of push is, who knows, you know, so... Yeah, you know, probably find a point where it feels right. Sure. You know, it's interesting, some of the advantages of having some range, having varied interests and, you know, going down these different rabbit holes, the advantages it can have. I, I as I'm reading your book, I just keep thinking about like, some of the guys I look up to a lot as far as being high performers, and, and some of whom we've had on the show here are guys out of the special mission units, the classified units of US special operations. And, yeah. you know, the guys they call operators, you know, that that highest level elite guy. It's interesting because I've had, you know, one of those guys used to run our charity. Several of them volunteered our charity. I've had a couple for business partners. Some of them work in our consulting firm and are what the other business we own. We've we've trained a lot of folks in the special operations and intelligence community for like leadership training and stuff like that. Right. And right. so I'm like, hey, guys, you got to take me shooting. <laughs> you know, come teach me how to shoot or, you know, tell me some spy stuff. Right. Because the little boy in me who still wants to be Jason Bourne, right? Yeah, and um, what's interesting is they'll say like, you know, they'll 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 tell me, oh yeah, the six of us just went and ran a two hundred mile relay race, right? Oh my, oh my. But but they don't claim to be like they're not they don't they aren't and don't claim to be the world's best ultra marathoners, and yeah. they don't claim to be the best like hand to hand. I could beat up anybody in a MMA fight, and they don't. You know, there's so many things that they're good at that they don't. They're not even trying to be the best in the world at, you know, yeah. there, there's a few things like, especially like, you know, you take like the army special mission unit, you know, like probably the premier counterterrorism, you know, in any military and anywhere in the world. And they're the guys who like, 
they're sneaking into a building and they're gonna they're like my one buddy who actually is coming on the show in a couple of weeks you know he was on the team that went and rescued one of the reporters that was kidnapped in iraq right and mm-hmm. being able to like you know being able to save that woman's life by shooting the guy before he can shoot her like that's a skill that they work mm-hmm. incredibly hard on right yeah, but yeah. so one of these other ones, like, you know, it's not like the movies, but they are good at so many different things. They can drive a tractor trailer. They can drive a, they can drive so many different instruments. They can, they can handle so many different technologies and they'll become a specialist at something, but then yeah. they are like, they are above average at like an absurd number of things. Hence right. the reason, like if you throw them out of a plane and they lost all their gear and all they had is a big pen, they're still going to accomplish their mission, you know? <laughs> That's good. That's good. Well, I had to. I had to say, from my own standpoint, I engage in a variety of things, and I, I, I probably engage in none of them in order to be an expert. You know, I do it for some period. Of time. I play the piano, and I play it for fifteen minutes. You know, I'll play the guitar, and I'll play it for twenty or thirty, thirty minutes, maybe. You know, and kind of get a few things down, and then I'll set the guitar down and go to something else. You know, probably the primary thing I can do for a longer period of time is read, and I, and I. I do that, read books, read newspapers and all kinds of publications as we all do. But I think variety is a, is a wonderful thing and, and variety does stimulate my brain, which is probably one of the things I'm in search of every day, you know. So, but that, I think the curiosity is a big part of the uh, joy of life. Curiosity is also part of successfully leading an organization because the I think the leader, in order for an, an organization to grow and evolve and, and keep a broader a group of people stimulated and engaged and on a sustained basis, I think the leader has to be, have a good deal of curiosity, keep the organization, keep the enterprise pushing out in that way uh, from a leadership standpoint. So this is a um, variety and, and curiosity are almost flip sides, flip sides of the same coin, I think. You know, I'm interested in how those things influence you. You, you look at you know, the fast food business, the the dining experience in America in general, like there's a lot of competition and it's, right. it's something right. that's been around a while. And, and there are certain chains that, you know, you could kind of swap the logo on the meal and people would believe you, you know, like you take the right. same meal and put it in a different box and people right. wouldn't, wouldn't be able to tell. And right. yet at Sonic, you were, you are able to differentiate and you like, yes. you did some things different and, and you yes. won as a result. Can you talk about creativity and differentiating within kind of a known space? Yes. Sonic had a distinct advantage from the outset, you know, long before I got there, in, in easily in two, two spheres. Uh, and I'm talking about just the base, basic concept itself. One, that it was a 1950s-style drive-in, and it never went away from that. Because everybody else who had that in the in the 40s, 50s, 60s either died, you know, or they moved just migrated away from it. And and Sonic did did not, and that, I think that kept a level of differentiation that over time helped to become highly distinct and and actually provide service differently and more effectively to customers, but also have the potential for some you know entertainment and a differentiated experience, entertainment value to it. So first was the drive-in. The second thing was that our founders set the kitchen up, set it up in such a way. And though there's some modifications over the years, it largely stayed as he set it up. So a fellow named Troy Smith, when he began it in the 50s, he had come from the full service, you might say upscale, fine dining business, a steakhouse. And when he saw some information on a nearby roof stand, he realized the guy wasn't working as hard as he was, but was making more money. And so he decided to try to get into that business. But when he set up the kitchen, based on his own experience, he set it up in such a way that all the food was made to order. 
And so instead of having automated processes where food waited in a warming bin and waited for a customer to show up, in other words, my years in talking to investors about Sonic, I would say to them, at most concepts, the customer is coincidental to the business. At Sonic, the customer drives, the food is not prepared unless the customer orders it. And that's a fundamental difference both in terms of being able to sell the difference to the consumer, but more importantly, Jess, the real key thing there is that the effect of having everything made to order means you can do more creativity with new products than you can in a, in a deal where everything's set up highly systemized with warming bins. It's much easier to add a different sauce or a different cheese in order to make a different sandwich or a, a new, even a different protein for a short period of time. And but the effect of this is that because our operators were completely accustomed to that, it meant that we were able to, on a continuous basis, have new products, whether it was for lunch, dinner, afternoons, or whatever. This really set us on a path, I think, that with some of our competition, would have absolutely tested them to the limits from a system standpoint, but from a talent standpoint as well. And yet with our operators, they were, uh, it, I mean, the fact that you could introduce a new shake almost every month but to the operator, what was the difference? It was a different syrup, you know, that went into the shake and it, it was the same ice cream machine. It was the same cup. It was the same process. To the customer, it sounded new, fresh, and different, had new nomenclature, you know, and you tempt them with a potential taste. But to the operator, it was the same process. So uh, this really gave us all kinds of license for years to offer new and different products that were really intriguing to the consumer. And so I think this was this was part of the Sonic DNA, and uh, it was something we've uh, I've been gone to, from the company for two years. They they uh, I can see from looking at commercials, they treasure it still. New product news is still part of the DNA. So you know, there's something there's a there's a couple words you said that I really latched onto when you talked about entertainment value, a little bit of entertainment yeah. value. You know, that variety yeah. feels like it would play into that as well. Why do you think yeah. that, why do you think that the engineering types and the accounting types and the, those of us that would like to, would like to tell everybody how rational we are, why do you think that we don't recognize how much humans like a little bit of entertainment value, our customers, our staff? Why do you think that that there aren't as many folks that like that embrace a little bit of entertainment value? Yeah, I don't know. I'm not sure I have an answer to that. But I can give you great examples of how a little entertainment can go a long way. I'll tell you that, you know, when we do customers, we do customer surveys at Sonic on a 100-point scale, and you would ask customers what their uh, ranking or reaction was uh, to one thing or another. When we would try to get an aggregate mass of information that the, uh, a, few, a few points wouldn't, you know, a few experiences wouldn't, wouldn't skew any numbers, we would see that when a car hop was on roller skates, people said the food tasted better. So, I mean, I mean, you know, clearly there's no correlation except one possible correlation. That is, okay, uh, food, maybe the food got to you 10 seconds, you know, than it would have or earlier than it would have. And so maybe the cold's a little colder and the hot's a little hotter, but there was a material difference. I think on a hundred point scale, there was an eight point difference in quality of food where the car was on the roller skate. And that has nothing to do, but just absolutely capturing the customer's fancy and just making, uh, turning the experience, not into just a, a satisfy, satisfy eating experience, but a somewhat more joyful experience. And the, and the consequence was they give you a higher score. So I always got such a big kick out of that. But the, the entertainment value was um, real potential there. And, and, you know, quite frankly, the space is probably pretty open. Do you know what I mean? You don't have a lot of competition for much entertainment right. value, right? Yeah, no, you're right. Yeah, it's tough, particularly waiting in, a, I mean, you think about it, 
with a lot of science competition, if you want to stay in your car, you're going to go through a drive-through lane. And so it's wait and move, wait and move. At, you know, at Sonic, you, you know, you're, you know, my pitch was, particularly as we were moving towards the implementation of the mobile order, mobile pay, my pitch, which when I left the company, they didn't utilize <laughs> was first in line every time. And I think that was the pitch to the consumer. You could order our premises, pay our premises. Literally, we are showing figures that when the customer would order our premises and pay our premises, fully installed, they'd have their food in, in less than two minutes. Made to order meal, less than two minutes, and they're gone. So it's a, it's a nice differentiation point that virtually... You know, the only folks I see are going to match it. I saw a picture on uh, LinkedIn, I think it was the other day, or well, maybe in another publication, industry publication. Nonetheless, the article was about Burger King adding, they showed a Burger King with stalls added on this, detached from the building, but on the side of the building and said, this is, quote, the future. They got a big kick out of it. It's a great future. Welcome, welcome to the future. Yeah, so <laughs> back, back anyway. to the future. It's back, back to, to the future. future. Right, right, right. So, um, thinking about marketing because you know Sonic does hold a different part in the customer mind, right? Right. When you think about that as a principle for either uh, business, who, well, let, let's start with businesses who are trying to create that. They're trying to create something iconic that they can own the customer mind for this thing. Do you have any principles or any ideas? For folks who are trying to be creative about that? Well, I guess the first advice I would have for anybody that's trying to get creative about presenting something in their business to uh, a consumer is authenticity. You know, when a, when a politician runs for office, I think they often have the viewpoint, not often, they do always have the viewpoint. This is what the consumer is uh, thinking about, the voter. How do we how do we get them to perceive that's who we are? Now, you know, you could say that's a Madison Avenue, you know, sort of learning could say they lose you learn that from the commercial world but you can't you can't live you can't sustain that in the commercial world because in the commercial world if you come out and say let us get you to perceive we're a certain way even if we're not you only get to do that once because if they buy your product and you don't match up to it i mean now today with social media boy you're going to pay for it and so the the first thing i would a, a piece of advice i give to anybody when you're out trying to sell differentiation or whatever it is make sure it's authentic and make sure it really does line up with your brand so that when your customer has the experience, the product or the service that you're offering, there's there's validity to your positioning. And if they yeah. perceive a gap, if they perceive a gap, you're in trouble. Yeah, it makes me think, you know, there's probably nobody out there who would say, Oh, I think we're inauthentic, right? Yeah, and yet, well, that's right. <laughs> and yet there's probably a lot of self-deception that goes in. You know, I, I think that there are plenty of politicians. Who who have really worked hard to kind of convince themselves, you know, like they've they've done a lot of mental gymnastics to say, no, this is I I believe this I I I can I can I can represent that authentically, right? right. And they it's it's the mental giant gymnastics, not an objective observation. Yeah. And uh, as you're saying that, I almost feel like you're saying like, don't give yourself a pat on the back for how authentic you are. Have a hard look in the mirror and try to get objective and. Try to double yeah. down on your strengths or be honest about some things that aren't your strengths or I, I don't know. How would you say that better? Well, I think you've got to, you, it's got to be an inside and outside deal. You've got to be, you know, have that integrity internally that there, that, that it is 
there's an alignment between what service is and the manner in which you're marketing it. There's a, there is an alignment there. And that's, I'm referring to that as the integrity piece. But you've also got to, but the inside out piece, outside pieces, you got to make sure that your customers are buying it. And I don't mean that literally. I mean that figuratively. You got to make sure that there's not a gap there. And so many organizations, you know, can't, can they, you know, can they believe their own BS? Well, of course they can. You know, I mean, every every organization does that to some degree. It's just a question of whether it's too much and it becomes deadly. But but getting real time, real customer feedback to your product or service will help you ensure there's alignment between how you perceive your goods and how the customer perceives your goods. And and if you're off. And you better find out, you know, how can you mod- modify the good or service to, to get where you think it needs to go? Uh, or, you know, maybe your customer's on to something and you need to think about that differently and align somewhat more where the customer's mindset is. And that happens periodically, too, of a customer perceiving a product differently. You can move their direction, but you know, it just depends on the enterprise. Yeah. Well, if we haven't mentioned it already, I think everybody should be going to cliffordhudson.com and getting their copy of the book. You know, maybe as we kind of wind down here, one of my favorite questions is asking folks, what's one of the best pieces of advice you ever received? Well, so in a, in a maybe a funny sort of way, I would say as I was as I was nearing 40, I was talking to one of my board members and he really became a very good mentor of mine. And then later in life, just became a good friend, you know, and I don't remember what the topic was, but, you know, I, I was either COO or CEO at the time and, you know, felt under a lot of pressure to perform, of course. And he made the comment to me, something to the effect of, well, there comes a point in life where we give ourselves permission to screw up, where when we make mistakes, we don't beat ourselves up about it too much because we finally acknowledge, yeah, we too are human. And and so admit it and own it and move on, but don't beat yourself up about it a lot. Now, for me, fascinating thing about his statement to me was not, was not that he was saying, don't beat yourself up. That took me longer to learn that part. <laughs> The part that I thought was so great was, you know, it's like I wanted to say to him, what, what? I I knew I wasn't perfect. I I didn't think you knew I wasn't perfect. You're telling me, you know that? Oh, no. You know, so in a way, he, he, he was saying, look, that's life. I know you, you, you're human and you're going to make mistakes and you know, I'm human and going to make mistakes. So let's get that, let's get that out of the mix. And, and, and in a way, maybe saying to me, don't try to, don't try to act like you're perfect, not you're not. And don't worry about acknowledging your screw ups, you know? And so that, what, what effect did that have on me? It, it was liberating. It was really very insightful. I know it sounds very fundamental, but doing it as a leader in those organization, which can only be often kind of be a lonely spot. Having your board member who's going to have to, quote, sit in judgment on you. Now, having your board member say that to you, it was somewhat liberating, both in terms of my head construct, but also in terms of my relationship with him. And uh, so that that was a, you know, that was a really big deal. Yeah. Uh, whether that surprised you or not, I don't know. But that that was a big deal for me. There are other pieces of good advice I got along the way, but in some ways that was one of the more fundamental ones. And it allowed, it allowed the two of us to have a, uh, to move to a different, uh, more trusting relationship which is big for me it was big for me professionally and personally you know he's a great guy well this has been great thanks for making time to do this sure jess i appreciate the opportunity and i I appreciate you tapping into the attention deficit in in most of us and i'm glad that my my coming out has helped you and perhaps others as well as as we kind of move through this journey so yeah i love it okay thanks everyone